Praise the Lord, everyone, and welcome to the last day of Unleavened Bread 2020 on our calendar. Today represents our victory. You know, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed on the Passover, of course. And the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast. And he's talking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He also said that we were, in fact, unleavened because of the work that Jesus did on the cross. Now, it's our responsibility as we entered into this feast. This feast is, is the first harvest, the first harvest of souls. It was the first harvest in Israel, the barley harvest. But it represents a harvest of souls, the first fruits, beginning all the way back, really, with righteous Abel, and now with us, those saints called at the consummation of the ages. And so now it's our turn. We began this journey, and now we must continue on and be faithful until the end. This journey is a fight. It's a bitter fight. It's a terrible fight because we have an enemy who wants to destroy us. We have an enemy that has destroyed many of the saints of God throughout time. We even find in the last days that there would be a great falling away from the faith because the devil knows that he has little time. He knows judgment is coming. Perhaps he has already ascended to heaven and been cast back down even for a second time as we see in Revelation chapter 12. And when he comes back down, he is in great wrath and he attacks the church. We find that in Revelation chapter 12, but God will help the church. This is the beginning of the great tribulation. I don't know exactly where we are in time, and, you know, the apostles wanted to know that just prior to the, uh, the, uh, the day of Pentecost, uh, after Christ had been resurrected. They asked the resurrected Jesus, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know. And Jesus actually doesn't even know himself. He said, the day or hour, no man knows. I don't even know. I don't know when I'm coming back for my bride. I don't know when I'm coming to establish the kingdom on the earth. I don't know when my saints are going to rule with me, sitting on thrones and ruling the nations with a rod of iron. I don't know when that is. I just know that it is and that it is surely going to come about. Only the Father, Jesus said, knows. The Father alone. It is the Father who will send him. And so we can't know these things. We can know the general time. Jesus said that. You will know. It's just like you know when spring is around the corner or that summer is ending and fall is beginning. We can see the signs of that, but we don't know a day or hour. Now, you know, our calendar has a specific date. Well, spring begins this date and fall begins this date and winter begins this date and summer begins this date. But those are just dates on a calendar. You know, this is something that is very fluid, and God is at work. And it's our responsibility. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed once and for all. 
Now that happened on the Passover. Immediately after the Passover, after Jesus was put in the tomb, after his crucifixion, at sundown began this feast, the seven days of unleavened bread. And the first day is a holy day. And the last day is also a holy day. This pictures the time when we are living our lives to perfection. Seven is the number of perfection, a number of being complete. This is a time that we are fighting the fight. We are running the race. And we have to win that fight and we have to finish that race. And it's not an easy one. We will get weary. There'll be times when we feel like we can't go on, that we feel like we just need to lay down and we can't endure it any longer. The Elijah, the prophet, felt that way. You know, after the great uh, confrontation with the prophets of Baal there on Mount Carmel and the great victory with the slaughter of all those pagan priests who had led God's people astray, and there's no doubt in my mind that Elijah was feeling, feeling a sense of victory. He had to feel empowered, but it didn't stop the enemy. You see, he received word from Jezebel. Jezebel didn't suddenly repent and, and come to the conclusion, well, I guess the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is truly God. I guess he is. I, I need to quit worshiping Baal and, and all these, uh, the, the female goddesses, Ashtoreth and Diana. I need to quit Easter. I need to quit worshiping these because they're not really God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh, he displayed his might on Mount Carmel. Who am I? to stand against him. But see, she didn't feel that way because there were raging spirits in her. There were spirits that were against the living God, that hated the living God, that had contempt for the living God. And when you have contempt for the living God, you have contempt for his servants, especially those powerful like Elijah. And so she sent word, says, if you're still alive this, this time tomorrow, it's on me because I'm coming after you. I'm sending people after you and you're going to die for what you have done. There was no repentant heart in Jezebel. There was, she didn't learn anything at all because she didn't want to learn anything. You see, and that's how so many are in the world. The world is going to hate you. And that's what Jesus said. If the world loved him, it will, I mean hated him, it's going to hate you. If you live a righteous life in Christ Jesus, if you pursue following the Nazarene, you're going to be persecuted. When ISIS began to, to just rage through the Middle East in places where there were uh, Christian communities, they would put on the side of the walls and on the windows uh, the letter N in their language, which meant it's not allowed, actually. And it was a symbol that it, it, the N actually stood for the Nazarene. It was their symbol for the Nazarene. And what they were saying is there is no worshipers of the Nazarene welcome in this place. And those who were, had always been Christians, raised up as Christians, they were given two choices, three choices actually, leave 
be killed or to pay a hefty tax every so often, probably every year. I, I don't know about that. But they were, uh, they were demanded to pay those things. Now, for Muslims who had converted to Christianity, they had two choices. Convert to Islam, come back to Islam, or die. And there were just countless thousands and thousands and thousands of martyrs during that time. You see, they, they understood and they came to face to face what it really is to live in this world where Satan has power and control if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of the Nazarene. You see, in this country, we don't see that so much because we have freedom of, of speech. We have freedom of religion. We can meet, and it doesn't matter. I mean, the government cannot tell us what we must teach what we must believe, what we must practice, as long as we are not breaking the laws of the nation. And of course, our nation's laws are based upon the Bible. They're really based upon the commandments of God. And so the government is giving us freedom. Our nation was founded on liberty to express our religious beliefs, to practice our religion, that there would not be uh, the United States of America would not have a state-sponsored church like England has the Anglican Church or what we call over here in America the Episcopal Church. Uh, the Germans have the Lutheran Church after Martin Luther, and that's their official church. You know, the, Rome has, uh, well, Rome has the Roman Catholic Church, and Spain has the Roman Catholic Church, and there's other nations that their official church is the Roman Catholic Church where we did crusades in Kenya. But while they were still a British um, um, colony, you know, the Catholics had come and many of them, and they had established Catholic schools. So most of the people who were Christian there were Catholics because they went to Catholic schools and they were taught Catholicism. We don't really know here in America. We haven't tasted that bitter persecution. We haven't tasted the martyrdom uh, that so many in the world have tasted. But we have to understand that we don't know what the future lies. But we really do know that we have to continue on. We have to fight the fight. We have to finish the race. And God promises that really the battle is his. We may go out to meet the enemy, like Gideon did, and so many others, like King David did. But truly, if you're in the faith, and you're trusting God, and you're relying on him, the battle belongs to the Lord. And we will be victorious in Jesus. And our faith in him, John said, our faith is our victory. And if we have faith, the evil one cannot touch us, but he will always try, amen? So this particular time period is, rep, these seven days represent the time of our lives from the time we received Christ to the time that our walk here, our journey, our mission is accomplished. Do you ever think about your life in Christ as being a mission? That you are on a mission, that you are a soldier, 
in the army of the Lord. And he has sent you on a mission. And the mission is a perilous mission. And it's filled with dangers. And so you have to have a battle plan. You have to not be ignorant, as the Apostle Paul said, of the enemy's strategies and his tactics. So he has an overall strategy. His strategy is one to cause you to fall away from the living God. He can do that in different ways. He can cause you to go back to the world. He can cause you to stay where you are and just become cold and void of the Holy Spirit because at some point you just stop obeying the Lord. You stop following him. The Lord never stops leading. We are followers of the Nazarene. He never stops moving, maybe momentarily, but he said, I have no place to lay my head. It's a journey. And we pick up our cross and we follow him. And it's not going to be easy on this earth. It's not going to be easy in this life, although it's embarrassingly easy for us here in America, America than it is many places in the world. But it seems like the devil knows how to put pressure on us no matter where we are. No matter what circumstances we have to be found in, he knows how to put that pressure on us. So today I would like us to understand a few things, and that is what this day represents. It represents our walk in Christ, our mission, fulfilling our mission, running the race, finishing the fight to victory, staying in there. It means that. It also means victory because we have victory in Christ Jesus. It also means the time. This day, I believe, is the time when the bride is presented to her husband or her husband presents the bride to God the Father. It's not the time where the marriage banquet is. It's not that time because we know that comes when the Lord returns. It's not the time of the consummation of the marriage where the bride and the groom become one because we believe that that happens be through the veil on the day of atonement. But this is the time when we are chosen. We have finished our race and now we have, we have been accounted worthy to be the bride of Christ. We were chosen to be the bride in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians chapter 1. He called us out of the world, made a covenant with us, separated us through the Passover sacrifice. And then we entered into this covenant, this seven-day period, this length of our life where we're living our life in Christ Jesus. And we're staying in the unleavened, pure manna from heaven. And we eat of him every day. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you are in fact unleavened, but understand this, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, let's think about that. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. We can't have a little leaven in us, brethren. We can't allow a little bitterness in us a little unforgiveness in a selective unforgiveness. We cannot hold back our love from others. We, we 
cannot be disobedient or say, well, I'm obedient enough. God understands. We can't think that way. We have to have a healthy fear of the Lord. God loved Cain and he loved Solomon and he appealed to them, speaking with Solomon twice, appealing to him. He appealed to Cain and said, it will be well with you if you just overcome. Sin is crouching at the door. Sin is always crouching at our door. The devil is like a lion looking for an opportunity. He's looking for an opportunity. He is an ambush. He is an ambush predator. And he's lying secretly, unseen, waiting for the right time to spring. You see, now we cannot have hidden reefs in our life. You know, a hidden reef would be like selective forgiveness. Well, I'm not all the way forgiveness. Or I struggle with forgiveness. Look, the Lord does not struggle with forgiveness. And the Lord in you will not struggle with forgiveness. And the reason we struggle with forgiveness is because we have too much pride. And we're not humble. If we're humble and we see ourselves as we really are, see yourselves as someone who is worthy of contempt. You are worthy of contempt. I am worthy of contempt. I deserve nothing. I do not deserve the forgiveness, the mercy, and the grace of God. I do not deserve it, and neither do you. None of us deserve it. We don't deserve a kind word from another person. You don't deserve it, and I don't deserve it. So we shouldn't be offended, although we are, and it's a work in progress, but we need to remember that we should not be offended if we feel slighted, if we feel disrespected. Now, that is not to say that you don't feel bad for someone who is, has contempt for you or is exercising unforgiveness or is causing problems or, you know, thinking, disrespecting you. Of course, you feel bad for them because they're being judgmental. They're throwing glasses when their own house is made out. They're throwing rocks when their whole house is made out of glass. They're burning their own house down when they do that. You see, we don't want to burn the Lord's house down. And we don't want our house to be burned down. And it will be. If there's hidden reefs, think I want us to be thinking about during this time because you see, this is a journey. Let's say this journey we're on, we're sailing and we're on a ship and we're going to our promised destination. And, and we understand that in this treacherous sea, on this treacherous journey, that there are hidden reefs. It's not going to always be some iceberg, even the iceberg that sank the Titanic. You know, it didn't look all that big on the outside. But as anyone who knows icebergs, most of the ice is underneath the water, is unseen. You do not see it. And there are icebergs that are barely out of the water, that barely tip out of the water, but there's a massive structure that can sink your ship that's underneath the waters. It's hidden. It's a hidden danger. And there's hidden danger. If this is a time where we examine ourselves. We don't stop examining ourselves when we take the Passover. We continue to examine ourselves to make sure that we are in the faith, that we're walking worthy of our high calling. If we are walking according to the terms of the covenant, if we are following the Nazarene, 
and living as a Nazarene lived. And he said, I'll leave this commandment with you. And this is a commandment that all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another as I have loved you. And he showed his love for us by laying down his life, even to be crucified cruelly on a cross. That's a difficult thing. In the natural, we can't do that. But I want you to think about some of the things that our brethren has gone through, the things that the apostles went through. I think of Nathaniel, precious Nathaniel, apostle of Jesus Christ. But he was martyred because he was a follower of the Nazarene. And he was cruelly martyred. He was flayed alive. His skin was peeled off his body. It was a horrible death. There was others who were crucified. Timothy, such a faithful and beautiful soul and servant of our beloved apostle Paul, was beaten in the streets, beaten to death. He died suffering. He suffered for two days. The Lord loved him. His death was precious in his sight. Our death is more precious in the sight of God than our birth because our death is not really a death. It is being born again from the dead. Revelation chapter 1 said of Jesus, he is the firstborn from the dead. Now we have been born again in Christ Jesus. All of us who have the Holy Spirit being led by the Holy Spirit, we have been born again in Him. We are a new creation in Christ. The old things have passed away. But being this new creation, we, are, we receive the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit convicts us. The Holy Spirit moves us to follow the Nazarene to follow the way of peace, to follow the way of love, to follow the way of forgiveness. It's not easy to do. We all fall short. We all need to recognize that we fall short, but we all have to understand that we can't just settle with, well, okay, I fall short. You see, we have to do what the Apostle Paul did. We have to press on toward the prize of our high calling. We have to buffet our body, bring it in under submission to the will of God. And the Holy Spirit will give us the power to do that. That's our calling, brethren. That's what we're called to do. It's not an easy calling. But when trouble comes, we have to show Christ has to come through in us. When trouble came to him and he was on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. When young Stephen was being stoned unjustly, Christ in him was able to shine through that broken vessel. You know, we may be a broken vessel. We are all broken vessels. But you know, when we break, what is revealed? If you take a vessel and you break it, it's going to reveal what is in the vessel. If you break it and out comes foul things, you see, we don't want that to happen. 
Now, you see, when the vessel is broken, it is supposed to bring forth a sweet fragrance and the light of Jesus. You see, when Gideon took those earthen vessels, those earthen vessels had light in them, representing the light of Christ Jesus. And when they blew the trumpet and when they broke the, the earthen vessels, the earthen vessels released the light that was in them. And that light destroyed the enemy. And that light will always destroy the enemy. But if your vessel is broken and no light comes through, it's because there's no light in there or because the light and the glory of God that is in there is being veiled by the flesh. We cannot allow the flesh to veil the light of God. Amen. This is a walk. It's a difficult walk. Every one of us has to decide. And this is a time when we decide whether we're going to continue on through the seventh day. It's not enough to take the Passover. It's not enough to be here. Listen to me. It's not enough to be here on the first day of unleavened bread. Because on that journey, I've seen many that never made it to the promise. This is the day. You have to continue through this day. And this is the, pro this is the time. Now, it gets more difficult as time goes on. Because the devil understands he has less time in your life. Do you hear what I'm saying? I said he, he understands as you get older. And not only as time comes closer to the return of Christ, but when you get older, when I get older, I'm 66, as I get older, I mean, he has tried to bring me down. For a long time. He's tried to bring me down for 46 years. He's tried to bring me down. And he hasn't succeeded. I've had many difficult times. There was times when I was weary. There was times I wanted to lay down. There was times I, I felt like I had to rest and I did rest. But I'm still standing. I've taken the blows. I have overcome the temptations, and I'm still standing. Now, the Apostle Paul recognized that in himself near the end of his life, but he didn't take any comfort in that. Matter of fact, he said that he's even more pressed on because he knew that he could still fall. He knew that his journey wasn't over. He knew that there were still hidden reefs that he had to be watching for. He knew that he had to proceed cautiously with his eyes open, watching. You know, when ships go, they, they have to watch for, you know, underneath the ocean, any sea, there's all types of terrain. There are mountains under there. You could be going along, and you could be, you know, in water that's uh, 10,000 feet deep, and then suddenly you find yourself not very... <laughs> you know, just going over a mountain that's risen way up and you could, it can, it can rip the whole uh, bottom out of your ship and your ship can sink. Today, you know, they have sophisticated sonar. I have sonar on my boat so that I know. It doesn't stop me from getting stuck sometimes, though. Sometimes I still get stuck on our lake out here because our Lake Dardanelle is, is a lake where there's, there's water as deep as 80 
90 feet deep, and then there's, there's water that looks like it should be, you know, 15, 20 feet deep that's really one foot deep, and you can't even tell it. And a boat like mine that's 24 foot long, you could get stranded on that. I have got stranded for momentary times like that. So I have sonar, you know, that will tell me what the depth is. Used to, they used to sound for, you know, to make soundings to see how many, you know, how much distance there is between the, they would make sound and then they would listen for how long it came back down from the bottom. The sound would go down through the water and come back. And they would know, you know, if they were in deep enough water for their ship. You have to be watching. The devil has planted hidden reefs. And listen, some of the hidden reefs, like I said, are personal things. Personal things. You can't hold on to pride. You can't hold on to unforgiveness. You cannot deny love. The things that Jesus, anything that's outside of walking in Jesus is a hidden reef that someday you're going to hit. Now you're going to hit that reef. You've got to be watching for that reef. You can get rid of the reef by just saying, look, I lay it down. I'm laying that down. I'm not going, I, that's, Father, take it. I know you'll take, if I lay it down, if I give it to you, you'll take it. If I hold on to it, it's a danger to me. So we have to understand that. So this is a time when we have to understand this represents our walk. Now today we are celebrating the last day of unleavened bread. If you think about what happened in Egypt, the Lord told them, on the 10th day of the first month, take a lamb and set it beside your dwelling. And then on the, the beginning of the 14th day, you slay that lamb and you roast it whole. You eat it. You stay in your houses. Don't go out until morning. And when you slay that lamb, take part of the blood of the lamb, which represented Jesus, and put it on the doorposts of your houses because Death is going to pass, over, pass through the land. The death angel is coming. And it's going to kill all the firstborn. You get it? The devil is after the firstborn, the first fruits. That's the administration of God. That's the bride of God. He has the world. He is after you, the first fruits. He has to get you. And so the death angel wasn't coming to kill everybody in the house. The death angel was coming to kill only the firstborn in every house. And when the death angel came and saw the blood on the doorposts of the house, the blood of Jesus, the blood of the Lamb of God, death passed over. Mercy Grace. Now they stayed in their house the next day they came out. The Egyptians were all mourning because in every house, every Egyptian home where there was a firstborn, they had died that night because they had not been protected by the blood. The children of Israel spoiled the Egyptians because the Pharaoh said, get out of the land. You can leave. Go, get out. 
So they spent the Passover, day part of the Passover. Passover begins at night. And then the day part of the Passover, they began uh, spoiling the Egyptians. The Egyptians were, were giving them things to, to, to have them leave, which was a custom. They spoiled the Egyptians and they left that evening on the first day of unleavened bread, just as that began at evening. The Bible says in Deuteronomy, under a full moon. And they came out of Egypt rejoicing, out of bondage to the Pharaoh and to his empire, his kingdom, which represented the devil in the kingdom of darkness. And they came out with a high hand under a full moon on the first day of unleavened bread that evening. And they came out rejoicing. Seven days later, they found themselves by the Red Sea on the last day of unleavened bread. Now, this was the time, and the Pharaoh knew his time was short. He knew if he was going to, to bring these people, these Israelites, back into bondage or to destroy them, he had to get them that day. This was the seventh day. This was the last day of unleavened bread. The children of Israel had been eating unleavened bread for seven days and were still eating it this day. And as they were there at the Red Sea with nowhere to go, here comes the enemy raging, raging and coming after them in full attack. And the people panicked. And they thought, there's nothing we can do. We are helpless before this great army that's coming after us in great wrath. Moses prayed to God. And God told Moses to tell the people, just stand still. And see, watch the salvation of the Lord. And God parted that Red Sea. And the children of Israel went through the Red Sea on dry ground. And it was just like the greatest rope-a-dope of all time. If you know about the rope-a-dope, it's when Ali used that strategy to defeat George Foreman, whom no one believed could even lose a heavyweight fight. But Ali laid back on the ropes and Foreman just pounded him. Pounded him because all he knew that he couldn't fight with him. He couldn't punch with him. So he just let big George just wear himself out. And after George was so wore out, just hitting Ali on the arms, Ali was protecting his vitals. And then Ali sprung off suddenly off the ropes and began to hit big George. And big George was knocked out. Afterwards, they asked about the strategy and Ali said it was the rope-a-dope. I lured the dope on the ropes. I laid back on the ropes and let him just punch my arms, just let him wear himself out. And when he couldn't do it anymore, I just sprang off and I, I won the fight. And that's what it was. What the Pharaoh saw, helpless Israel, going through the Red Sea. He was just enraged. He probably wasn't even paying attention that the sea was parted. I don't know. It's irrational. Sometimes the devil is irrational. And he went in after, thinking, well, they're helpless down there. They have no weapons. They have no weapons. Israelites had no weapons. 
They were helpless. And they went in on the last day of unleavened bread, and that was the end of Pharaoh and his army. Because the children of Israel were safe on the other side, but as the Egyptians were pursuing them in rage, God caused the Red Sea to come back together and drown the Egyptians and the Pharaoh in the sea. And God will do that for you and for me. We need to really examine our life to see, are we really in the faith? Are we truly serious? Do we fear God? You know, there's so many people, they don't have a fear of God. And we know that God is a loving Father. We know that our beloved is our beloved who gave his life for us. But Jesus said that many will follow the road to destruction and very few will follow the straight and narrow road to life. It's always been that way. It will always be that way in this life. Until Christ comes, it will be this way. So choose this day. This is the day. Will you finish the race? Brethren, we have to finish the race. Amen. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This day is designed to represent our victory, just like it was victory to the Israelites over the Pharaoh. But they had to get there. They had to follow God all the way there. And God will make a way in the end. There's no doubt about it. But we have to be following him, not resisting him, but following him faithfully. And finish this race. Satan hates this day because this is a day that the first fruits are harvested. You see, it's during this feast that two of the most significant things that's ever happened in history, the most significant thing that's ever happened is the resurrection from the dead. That Jesus was resurrected from the dead during this feast. And another significant event is when the wave sheaf was gathered during this feast and waved before the Lord. And that wave sheaf of the barley, a representative uh, portion of the barley, was waved before God. And he accepted it as it was presented to him. Then the rest of the barley is accepted. All you have to do is stay barley. All you have to do is stay in the harvest. And you know every harvest, there's things that are against harvest. You know, harvests come from seeds planted, seed growing to maturity to where that seed produces fruit. Amen. It has to produce fruit. If there is no fruit, there is no harvest. And there is no fruit without a seed being planted. And without the seed being planted in good soil and being watered and growing and not being devoured by locusts and uh, rust and other predators of nature, it will grow to maturity. And when it grows to maturity, it will produce a harvest. And that's what we have to do. We can't allow the seed that God has planted in us, the holy seed that he's planted in us, we cannot allow that to be choked out 
by thorns, by the worries of the world. We can't allow the world to choke us out. We can't allow our seed. We can't allow hearts to be hardened. We can't allow that seed to be on hard surfaces, on rocky soil, because it can't find root there. And the, the trials of this world, when the, the sun comes out and it beats down upon that little plant, that little shoot, it will not survive. And we can't allow, not, we cannot allow ourselves not to listen to these words of truth and let them, this seeds of truth, this call to holiness, to righteousness, to repentance, to be faithful and finish the race, to let go of whatever will keep us from it, to lay by the way, the roadside so that birds come, the devil comes and snatches it away. And even then the devil is going to plant weeds in your life. There's going to be weeds planted in your life. He's going to come secretly while you sleep and he's going to plant those. And they are there to choke the life out of you. So we have to remain faithful until the end. Amen. Satan hates this day. He hates it because at the end of this day, whoever, go, whoever begins and ends from the Passover through the days of unleavened bread, they are victorious in Christ. But our fight is a long, it's a bitter fight. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, notice verse 23. I do all things, Paul says, for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. So what does he do? All things for the sake of the gospel. What is the gospel really? Well, you're receiving Christ Jesus to live his life in you. You are dying as he did. You are being crucified with him and you're raised with him and you, uh, you, you receive by faith that you're going to receive eternal life. As he was resurrected, you're going to be resurrected and you have hope in that. And that happens during this time. See, so he says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. Do you do all things for the sake of the gospel? Write it down. Am I doing all things? Am I doing all things for the sake of the gospel? To be a partaker of the gospel. The gospel is only as good as it is received, lived out, and finished. Doesn't matter otherwise. Does it matter if you're not going to finish the race? It's better not to even start. That's what Peter said. Peter said, it's better not to even put your hands to the plow if you're going to look back. I do all things, verse 23, for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Now, he, Paul is saying, everything I do is for the gospel. Everything I do is for the not, Nothing I do is for me. Nothing I do is for myself. And nothing I do is just for someone else outside of the paradigm of the gospel. And I'll tell you why I do that. So that I will be a fellow partaker of it. 
You see, I want eternal life. I want pleasures forevermore. I want the fullness of joy. I want to see the crystal sea. I want to see the streets of gold. I want to see my Lord. I want to hear his voice. I want to be on the couch with him. I want to be his bride. I want to bring honor and love. Express, I want to express my love to him. And I want to feel his love expressed to me. That's what I want. Now, how am I going to receive that? Well, I'm going to do all things for the sake of the gospel because I want to be a partaker of that gospel. And Paul said, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? It's only one who receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control. Of course you do. Of course you exercise self-control. Anyone who's ever played sports understands that you have to exercise self-control. If you're out of self-control, you're not going to do anything very well. Amen? Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we for an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not merely beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. He understood he could become disqualified. So what did he do about it? Well, he, he ran in a way to win. He boxed in order to hit something. He brought himself under self-control. I'm not going to read it, but it's a good, it would be a good uh, chapter for you to read later today. And that's chapter 10 because that's a continuation. You see, the context of chapter 10 is what we just read. When he's saying, I don't want you to be ignorant of Israel's mistakes because you can make the same mistake Israel did. You can become an idolater. You can become a sinner. You can uh, become a complainer, a grumbler, someone who's always complaining that you don't have, you know, what you used to have in Egypt. Well, you're not in Egypt, though, you see. You're not in Egypt. And maybe you're in a difficult place, but you're just in a difficult place temporarily. You see, you're on the road to glory. You're on the road to eternal life. We're on the road to eternal life. We're on the road to pleasures forevermore. We're on the road to our beloved who waits for us, who has prepared a place for us. We're on the road to a place and a time and a, you know, where there will be no tears. There'll be no sadness. There'll be joy, everlasting joy. That's where we're headed. We're not going to have it in this life. We're just simply not, you know, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers us out of them all, and he will. But you know, we're going to have many afflictions along the way. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3.
verse 7, the Apostle Paul said, he's talking about, he was talking about everything that uh, he had achieved in his former life in Judaism before he came to Christ. He said, but whatever things, verse 7, were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, there's going to be things that you will suffer loss in. You have to, it's like Jenny's, you know, little necklace, little imitation gold necklace. You know, you have to let go of that little imitation in order to receive the real thing. What we are willing to let go of will determine what God will give us. We will reap what we sow. If we sow strife, if we sow uh, dissension, if we sow unforgiveness, hear me, if, if we sow withholding love, if we sow bitterness or hatred or whatever it happens to be, lust of the world, greed, pride, we will reap those things, and they are a bitter harvest indeed, a bitter harvest. They're weeds that will kill your good harvest, and when you go to, to reap your harvest, you're going to find only bitterness there, only bitter weeds. We don't want that, and we don't have to have it. We don't have to have it at all. It's, the power is in our hands. God has given us the power. Jesus said, or God said, Jesus, really, it was God, the Son, that was speaking to Israel when he said, choose life. I set before you life and death, and you can choose. It's your choice. It's your choice. But if you hold things that will poison your soul, it will kill you. And it breaks God's heart. So more than that, Verse 8, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. You just think about, Paul had to wonder, why am I in the ocean? Why am I in this sea shipwrecked? Now listen, he is, he's going, he's a prisoner. He's going to Rome. Think about this. He's going to Rome. He's a prisoner. He already knows what's going to happen. He has a good idea what will ultimately happen. And he's going along there. And suddenly, I mean, listen, he knows that God knows where he is. He's on a ship in chains with other prisoners going to Rome. And the ship hits a reef. They didn't see it. It was hidden. God allowed it to happen. Now, what's Paul thinking? Here I am. I'm compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I have to go. The Holy Spirit is making me go. And in every city, the prophets in the church are telling me I'm going to be bound and arrested and I'm going to end up in Rome because I happen to be a Roman citizen and I have certain rights that regular Jews don't have. So this is going to happen to me and I'm accepting this. This is God's will. I don't know what he's going to do, but I know he's going to do. I don't know how he's going to work this out, but it will work out. I don't know what I must suffer in order to be, for it to work out, but I know I'm going to suffer because Jesus told me, you're going to suffer. 
and following me. They're doing my will. They're accomplishing my will. You're going to suffer. So there he is, and he's thinking, well, I've suffered quite a bit. I've been, meeting, being, I've been beaten already more times than I can count. I've been in danger. I've already been in the sea a day and a night, twice. I've been beaten with rods. I've been beaten with whips. I've been stoned to death. I've suffered exposure. I've suffered hunger. I've suffered betrayal. I've suffered wondering how my brethren are doing. Are wolves coming in, devouring the sheep? Devouring the churches that I have planted. Are the, those faithful elders that I have seen to be uh, anoint, ordained and anointed to, to shepherd the sheep, are they still doing it? Or have some of them risen up as wolves and are devouring the flock and teaching heresies? He had that pressure on him every day. And here he is. Now, after all of that, Now he's a prisoner of Rome. And now he's on his ship. And he's going to Rome to be a prisoner, knowing that he will probably, hoping that he wouldn't, but knowing probably that he's going to suffer death there, that he will eventually receive the death penalty, which he did. And so now he's going, he's accepting all this. He's, he's probably still thanking the Lord. And then in the middle of the night, the ship hits a hidden reef. And now the waves are hitting it. And it can't move anywhere and the ship is falling apart. And all the prisoners are in chains. You know, funny thing about chains, you can't swim well when you're in chains. And Paul convinces the Roman soldiers to take the chains off of everybody. And we're just going to try to make it to the shore to this little island there called Malta. And there the people had seen the shipwreck and they had built a fire because they knew it was cold and they knew that they would be suffering exposure to the elements. And so they were getting ready. They were there to try to help and to try to serve those poor shipwrecked souls. And so as they made it to the shore, the Apostle Paul thought, well, you know, I'm going to do my part. I'm not going to worry about, you know, this happening to me on top of everything else that's happened to me in my entire life in Christ. I'm still faithful. I'm still trusting God. I don't know why this happened. I don't know why I'm here on this island. I don't know why the ship. I mean, I'm cold. It's wet. I don't know why this is happening, but I'm just trusting God. He's always been faithful. I don't know why. I don't have to know why. I don't have to know why. He'll accomplish his will. It's for him to know why. If he wants to tell me, fine. I don't have to know. So he thought, I'm going to help these natives feed this fire. So he goes over and he starts gathering up some sticks to put in the fire. And it isn't enough that he's been in chains, that he's going to be to Rome to be imprisoned and later killed. That on the way that he shipwrecked and he had to swim to shore in icy waters and now he's trying to warm himself by a warm fire on an island. And out of nowhere, a viper, a, a venomous viper is hiding in the, the, the wood. 
and reaches out and bites Paul on the arm. And as he puts <laughs> as he puts the wood down, there's hanging from his arm. What all the natives understand and know well is a venomous viper that is going to kill whoever it is bitten. And Paul just shook it off and he sat by the fire and all the natives were there watching, waiting for the effects of that venom to take its toll on the Apostle Paul. And they were waiting and nothing happened. And they were amazed and they inquired and they wanted to know why nothing happened. Now, think about this. And the Apostle Paul is saying, well, because I serve a living God. Because my Savior Jesus lives in me. And he protected me. And he said that if I'm bitten by any poisonous thing, any venomous thing, it will not hurt me. So here I am. Now, if I'm one of those natives, I'm thinking, well, why didn't he protect you from being in chains? Why are you a prisoner? What kind of God lets you be a prisoner and lets you be in chains? And how is it that you serve a God that will protect you from being bitten by a venomous snake, but he doesn't protect you from being shipwrecked? Why didn't he protect the ship? He knew you were on the ship. Why didn't he protect the ship from being hit in that hidden reef and being sunk? Why did he put you in all that danger? Why are you out here on this island in the cold, suffering exposure? Why did God allow that, that snake? He knew the snake was there. Did your God, is your God a God that knows things? Did he know that the, that the snake was hidden in that pile of wood that you were picking up? Why did he allow it? Why did he allow the, the snake to even bite? Those things would be in my mind. That's what I'd be thinking. But you know what it led to? It led to a great salvation movement on the island of Malta. God knew what he was doing, but you know who had to suffer? Well, mainly, there was other people that suffered too, other prisoners, other soldiers, they suffered. They had to go into the water. Some of them may have drowned. But the one that mattered was the chosen one, the anointed one of God. That's the one that mattered. The one whom God had anointed and chosen to fulfill the requirements of the gospel to the Gentiles. And when the apostles, when it was all over that night, when that night and that next day was over, there were many, many Christians. There are many people who come to know Jesus Christ and had been saved of their sins and had received the Holy Spirit by which Christ lived in them and the earnest of eternal, eternal life. That, that was the good that came out of it. Didn't look like any good was going to come out of it, but it did. And we don't always see. We see in hindsight. Amen. Verse 9, And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is from faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I might know him and I might know the power of his resurrection 
and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. Yes, we're conformed to his death. But we need not worry because we will obtain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Verse 13, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind, and I'm reaching forward to what lies ahead. Press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many are, in, are perfect, let us have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join me in following in my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross and their end is destruction. Their God is their appetite and their glory is their shame and they set their minds on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will transform the body of our humble state into the conformity with the body of his glory. Hallelujah. By the exertion of the power that he has even to subject himself, subject all things to himself. And verse 1 of chapter 4 says, Therefore, this is a continuation, Therefore, my, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown. You know, he's talking to us. We are those who believe because of him. Therefore, my beloved brethren, that's you and I, whom I long to see, and he will see us on that day. My joy and crown. We're his joy and crown. In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Verse 5, let your, gent let your gentle spirit, hear me. This is what he says. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men, for the Lord is near. Be gentle. Have a gentle spirit. Don't be anxious for anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, give thanks. And let your requests be known to the Lord. And if you do this, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts. What do we have to do to have the peace of God guard our hearts from things that will cause us to not have peace? Think about it. All of us want peace. Above all things, really, we, of course, we want salvation, but we want the peace that salvation gives. 
We want peace. We want peace. We don't like conflict. We don't like constant turmoil, dissensions, factions. We, we don't like these things. They're unsettling. They unsettle us. They upset us. We don't like these things. We just sometimes don't know what to do. And sometimes we don't know how to stop feeding those things if we're part of the problem. But here's what he's saying. Rejoice. First thing is just rejoice. Say, thank you, Lord. I find joy in you. I'm not finding joy in my circumstances necessarily, but I find joy in you because I'm not finding joy that I'm shipwrecked on the island of Malta. I'm not finding any joy that, you know, that I'm cold and suffering exposure. I'm not finding a lot of joy that I just got bit by a venomous snake because maybe I'm not going to die, but it hurt like hell. No, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not taking much joy in that. Uh, but I am going to rejoice in you. I'm going to rejoice in the fact that maybe I don't know why you allow these things to happen, uh, but I rejoice in that you're faithful. And so I'm just going to rejoice in the Lord always. That's the first thing. Write it down. Rejoice in the Lord always. You may not know why he does. You don't have to know why. He does. <laughs> you know, the thing about it is, if we asked him to explain it to us, we probably would not get it. That's like, you know, trying to explain to a grizzly bear how, you know, what you're, what you're doing when you're trying to help him out of a bear trap. Now, you know, maybe you're trying to help him out of a bear trap, and in doing that, it hurts the bear. And all he knows is that I'm feeling some pain. Well, maybe there's no way out of the trap without the pain. You know, but once you're out of the trap, the pain, your, your wound will heal. And eventually there will not be any pain. But if you stay in the trap, the pain will always be there and you will be bound by it. Amen. So the first thing is to rejoice in the Lord. Maybe you don't rejoice in your circumstances, but you rejoice in the Lord of your circumstances and you trust him. Secondly, write it down. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Why? Because the Lord is near. Why? Because this is the only way you're going to have peace. Rejoice in the Lord and, uh, and don't quench the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us a gentle spirit. Be anxious for nothing. Don't be concerned about what you don't have. Be anxious for nothing, but just pray. And thank God for what you do have. Don't be anxious for what you don't have. Thank God for what you do have. And make your requests known to God. And then accept whatever he says. Sometimes the Lord says, well, I, I, you know, I'm not going to take that thorn from your flesh, Paul. I mean, I would love to take that thorn from your flesh, but I love you too much to take it because, you know, you... It, it, it is a safeguard against pride for you. And if pride is found in you, you'll go the way of Lucifer and I will not be, we will be separate, separated from all eternity. God does everything he does to keep us from, if he separates from you, it is order to cause you to come near to him. Go find him. That's what he wants. It's like hide and seek. Maybe he hides, but he's waiting for you to come and seek. Amen. 
Seek the Lord when he may be found. So if we rejoice in the Lord and know that he is the Lord of our circumstances, and if we have a gentle spirit, whether we feel like it or not, act to see the fact. Hold your tongue, bite it if you have to. Count to 1,264. And maybe by that time you'll forget why you're even upset. Why? And you can be gentle. I saw this, this man, his name is uh, John Gottman, and he is an expert. He does research on married couples. And he's written what is called the Four Horsemen, the four different uh, uh, vices that destroy marriages. And the chief of all is contempt. There's criticism, contempt. There is... Um, uh, it's a resistance, that wasn't the word he used, and uh, then there was stonewalling. But uh, he was, uh, had some very, very good points. And he said that contempt is, a, is the best predictor of divorce. Over 90% of marriages where there was contempt, you know, there was a mocking, there was, a, you know, uh, always throwing up uh, to someone, you know, where their faults were, you know, and uh, in an overcritical way, um, disrespect and those things, because there's really, it, it erodes, he called it the sephoric acid of love. It will just com completely uh, get rid of any love that we may have. But he's saying, you know, that you won't have peace unless, you know, you get rid of those things. Now, he said those things may come up from some time. They may come up from time. But he said the masters of marriage deal with them. And they don't allow contempt to take root. So here he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the circumstances. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. He says, the Lord is near. And be anxious for nothing. And he said, the antidote for contempt is appreciation. Instead of thinking about what you don't have or what your partner is lacking, you think about what he has. I've used that many, many times. For many, many years in marriage counseling, I have said, before you take out a drawer of all the, you know, your, uh, that you have put in there, all the bad things, all the bad files of your mate. Look here, look at all these files I got on you. You, you know, you don't get a clear picture by only looking at the bad files. You have to pull out the good files. Why do you love that person to begin with? What caused you to fall in love? I asked them those questions. Why did you marry that person to begin with? There had to be something that you found attractive and something that you respected or that you loved about that person. Uh, is that no longer there or whatever, you know? So... You know, you have to look at both. If you look at, if you put more weight on what you do have, you're going to appreciate. So the antidote 
to that is appreciation. And that is the antidote. That's how Paul came to be content in all things. He appreciated what he did have. Uh, you know, he told Timothy, he said, uh, you know, bring my cloak. Uh, why would he say that? Well, probably because he's cold. And he didn't have, you know, enough uh, clothing to keep himself warm. So he said, bring my cloak that I left in a certain place. When you come, you bring that with you. Because he needed his cloak. Well, he wanted that cloak. But not having the cloak didn't cause him to be discontented. He said, I've learned to be content in all things. I've learned to be content with much, with little, I've le with, in exposure, you know, and in comfort. I've learned to be content in, all, uh, content in all things. So what do we say? Rejoice in the Lord always because he is the Lord of our circumstances. And let, this is something you have to let happen. Let the Holy Spirit Take control of your flesh and let a gentle spirit flow from you in the sight of all men. For the Lord is near. And then don't worry about it. Don't be anxious. Don't be trying to push something, get something that you want. Be anxious for it because you don't have it. Just pray and give thanks for what you do have. And that's what he said, Dr. Gottman. Be thinking, looking about what, you know, it's like the old adage, you know, is your cup half empty or half full? It's all, it's the same amount. It's just however you view it. You view it as, you know, well, look at all that I have missing. Or you can view it and say, look at all that I have. And one of them is going to, you, you can give thanks for. The other one you won't feel like giving thanks for because you're not thinking about what being thankful for what you have, you're thinking about, you know, you're being upset for what you don't have. You're always not going to have. Amen. All of us. All of us are not going to have everything that we want in this life. And then if we do these things, the peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds. So finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. That's what you think about. The things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Practice them. Practice the things I just said. Rejoicing in the Lord of your circumstances. Allowing a gentle spirit to come through by the power of the Holy Spirit. Resisting anything that is not of a gentle spirit. Don't be worried about things. Don't be anxious. Don't be always trying to get something that you don't have. But be appreciative and thankful for what you do have. And then just pray to God who has the power to give you even more. And then we will have peace. And he said, do these things. You learn them from, we, from me. So do those things. Now, 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is at the end of his life, and he says some parting comments to his beloved son in the Lord, Timothy. I want to read a few of those here in Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Timothy... I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge and the living, judge of the living and the dead, 
by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove. I mean, reprove what you think you know. Rebuke those who need rebuking. Exhort. I mean, stir to action those who need to be stirred up. And do it with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They'll want to have their ears tickled. They'll want to just hear what they, they want you to say what they want to hear. And they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to fables. But now that's them. Now for you, Timothy, by contrast, you, you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. That's what we have to do. It will come. And do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. That's what this week is. That's what this feast is. Finishing the race. Fulfilling our ministry. You have a ministry in Christ. And you have to work, you have to walk worthy of that ministry. You cannot tell others, forgive, love as Christ loved, put away pride and become humble. Think of others as more important than yourself. You can't say that to others and not be saying, Lord, help me. Help me be more in the image of the Nazarene. Help me. Would someone consider me worthy of martyrdom? If I had been living my life in the Middle East when ISIS came through, would I even be a threat to the caliphate? Would I be a threat to Islam? Do they see Christ in me clear enough that it would disturb them? that I would be seen as a threat. You know, the one thing that brings more Muslims to Christ than anything else is love, the love of God. The love of God is not enough, though. The love of God is not enough. The love of God is like the kindness of God leads us to repentance. You know, the love of God can melt our hearts so that it, the seed of the gospel can be planted by which we, we repent. But if we don't receive that, our hearts, just like wax that's melted, it just cools and gets hardened again, you see. It takes both. And that's why the, the word went forth with a strong message. Listen, you're a sinner. You have to repent. That's the bad news. The good news is God loves you so much that he gave his only begotten son. That God's heart yearns for you and he doesn't want anyone to perish. And he is thinking about you specifically. You're the lost sheep that he leaves all the other 99 just to go get. And he'll rejoice over you when he brings you into the fold more than all the 99 that are already there. That's the love of God. 
But you can't come without repentance. There has to be a repentant heart. There has to be a broken heart. There has to be a melted, soft, pliable heart that can receive that planted. So we come with the love of God and we love people, but we have to say, you know what? I love you so much and I don't want to live with eternity without you. I want, God doesn't want to live with eternity without you. He gave his son for you. He loves you. Receive him. Yes, you'll have to let go of some things on this earth. Yes, you'll suffer some loss here, but it's nothing. It's nothing compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ and the riches and the glory to come forever. Yes, you have momentary pleasures, but you'll have pleasures forevermore. Yes, you can have some moments of joy, but there's always uncertainty. There's always fear here. There's always trouble. There's always heartbreak. There'll be no heartbreak. Don't you want to live like that? And the alternative is, if you don't come to Christ, you're just following a road that goes only one way, and that is to destruction, to the lake of fire. And you don't want that. Now, verse 6 says, Paul said, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Verse 16. Paul talks about being charges brought up against him by Alexander the coppersmith. And he says at verse 16, my first offense, no one supported me. Paul was betrayed. He was alone. After preaching to countless thousands and thousands and thousands, walking thousands of miles, No one supported him, it says, but all deserted me. And then he said, may it not be counted against them. Now see, that's the attitude of Christ. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. And he says, why? So that through the proclamation, through me, the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear and notice, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, Romans chapter 5, we're not going to turn there, but we see that God saved us while we were yet sinners, just like he saved the children of Israel while they were in the land of sin in Egypt. And so he saved us while we were yet sinners, and now through the sacrifice of Christ, we have been made unleavened. Now this is a day that we are presented 
to the Lord as the bride of Christ Jesus. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 13. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. And he goes on to say, yes, we're going to have momentary affliction. We're going to have trouble, you know, but this mortal is going to be swallowed up by the immortal. In chapter 5, it says, you know, we need to understand and know fully the fear of the Lord. And that's why we're persuade men to repent. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I'll just paraphrase it, but Paul is saying, you know, I'm worried about you. I'm worried, you see, that you will be deceived, just like the serpent deceived Eve. I'm worried that he will deceive you by his craftiness because I betrothed you to one husband to Jesus Christ, and I want to present you to him as a pure virgin. Sometimes God asks us to do some very difficult things. Go to Colossians chapter 1. I think about Mary, (laughs) young girl, young peasant girl. There she is. She's She's betrothed. She's looking forward to her marriage to her beloved Joseph. And an angel comes and says, Mary, I'm an angel from God. I am Gabriel. I'm sent here with a message for you. God wants me to tell you that you are blessed among women. You are so blessed. And this is what the Lord is going to do. His spirit is going to hover over you and you are going to become with child, yet you will still be a virgin. She didn't understand that, but listen, she knew what it meant. She knew what Joseph would think. She knew what everyone else would think. She knew what everyone would think about the child, Jesus, and they did. They would mock Jesus. Well, we know who our father is. You don't even know who your father is. See, God puts people in position sometimes. Look what he did to that. A young teenage girl in a poor family. And in that, you're blessed above all other women on the earth. Only you have been given, chosen to receive the honor of to receive the spiritual seed of of God himself through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that seed will grow in you. And that is God in you, God in the flesh. And one day he'll break your heart. One day you'll see him on the cross. This child whom you carried, you'll see. You'll see him carried to an empty tomb. You'll see all these things, but you're blessed, Mary. Yes, you're going to suffer scorn. 
oh yes, you're going to be mocked. Your son's going to be mocked. And Joseph's a good man. Perhaps he'll understand. Perhaps he won't. But she said, I will. May it be as you say. What an example. Is there a better example than that? What an example. I mean, that change that no one would have believed. I mean, you say, well, you know what? God did it. Not me. God did it. They saw a physical child being born. They saw a physical pregnancy. They saw a physical labor. They saw all those things. Yes, God appeared to Joseph, or an angel did, and told Joseph what was really going on. And he, But most people did not know. They just did not know. And so she lived her life with that hanging over her like a dark cloud. She knew the truth, but I think she may have even questioned it later on, you know, when her and her other children went to take custody of Jesus when they thought that he had gone insane. That was the time, you know, when they came to Jesus and they said, hey, you know, your brother, brothers and sisters, they're outside and they want to see you. Jesus never went out there. He just said, you know, I'll tell you who my brothers, mothers, and sisters are. It's those who do the will of God. He knew what they were there to do. Mark's account tells us that they were there because they thought he'd gone insane because he was saying things like, I am the son of God. He was only saying the very things that Gabriel, the angel, had told Mary. Mary had seen miracles. She knew that already. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, and although you were no longer alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you. Present you before him holy, blameless, and beyond reproach, if indeed, and that is an if, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away. There would be no need of any admonitions if, you, if it were impossible for you to fall from that grace. Of course, it's your choice. It's your choice to receive Christ. It's your choice to continue in Christ. It's your choice to start a race. It's your choice whether you're going to endure until the end. It's your choice to start a fight or to finish and to fight it through until it's over. It's your choice. It's our choice to do that. Each individual choice. But let us not deceive ourselves. It will cost. <laughs> it will cost you you. It'll cost everything that you are. You have to just simply lay down. It's not easy. Listen, I say these things. Don't think because I say these things that I do them. Somehow I just magically, because I'm preaching, lay down your, your unforgiveness, lay down your pride, lay down, you know, bitterness, lay down, you know, your, your lustful desires or the, your greed or whatever it happens to be. Lay, you know, I have to preach. I'm a preacher. I've called and ordained to be a preacher. I preach these things. I'm preaching to me too, brethren. I'm preaching to me too. So don't just look at me and say, well, you said this and you do this. Yeah, amen. <laughs> amen. 
I'd just wear it right here on my lapel if I could, you know. But I'm forgiven, and you're forgiven too, as long as you're committed to being steadfast. But now you have to be committed to being steadfast. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established, steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and with the word. And he tells us why, verse 27, that he might present to himself the church in all of, it, all of her glory. So what are we saying? Listen, I want her cleansed. I want her washed with water, washed with the word. Let the word that I'm speaking today clean you up. Receive it, use it to give yourself a good bath, all that you need is your feet clean. And he says why? That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot, no wrinkle, or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Now let's recap the holy days, you know, before we end this. You know, there's seven annual holy days. These feasts, occur three times a year in three seasons. The spring, which is the Passover, and the barley harvest, the Days of Unleavened Bread. The barley harvest happens during the Days of Unleavened Bread. And then 50 days later is counted to the Feast of Weeks, or what we call in the New Testament the Day of Pentecost. It's in early summer, and it is the wheat harvest. It represents the future Harvest is the salvation of the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel. And then we have the fall harvest, which is the vine, apples, oranges, figs, and the, the vine, the, the wine, and the produce, the apples, oranges, figs, and fruits, and things like that. That represents all of those that are left after the tribulation and also those who have ever lived that never knew Christ that will come up in the second resurrection after the thousand-year reign of Christ. You'll see that in Revelation chapter 20. Now, the Passover, of course, everything begins with the Passover. On the 14th day of the first month on the Hebrew calendar, Christ, our Passover, is offered. That makes those who receive that Passover, those who receive the blood of the covenant, drink the blood of the covenant that feed upon the unleavened of Jesus, the unleavened bread of Jesus. Then we enter into the covenant and for seven days we stay in that covenant by eating unleavened bread. We don't take any leavening in because we've been made unleavened, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, and he says a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. I have gotten you are a completely leavened lump, but now you are unleavened by my work at the cross 
Now I want you to keep yourself unleavened. Don't allow a little leaven in. Don't allow a little pride in. Don't allow a little unforgiveness in. Don't allow a little, you know, seeking your own interest in. Don't allow a little lust in, a little greed in. Don't allow a little in because it doesn't stay little. It does not stay little. It is leavening. It will begin to spread out through your entire life and it, it, will, it will destroy us. So we keep ourselves unleavened. And we're going to find leavening just like we do in our houses once in a while. That teaches us that there's hidden reefs. So well, how did that box of baking soda get there? I thought I cleared out my refrigerator. Or how did that little, there's a little jar of cookies back there that are living. How did I miss that? We do miss it. Sometimes they're hidden. Sometimes they're hidden places behind something and we don't see it. Of course, those things are just natural physical things. They're not going to defile you. But they are to teach us that there are spiritual things. There's, there, 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 there's things that can defile your spiritual life. The desires, the, the, the hidden reefs, of the, the, the deeds and the desire, lustful desires of the flesh that are there. So we find the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. That's the barley harvest. That's the first fruits. That's the Christians. That's spiritual Israel, uh, Romans chapter 9. That's spiritual Israel, the true children of Abraham, the Israel of God. That's Galatians chapter 6. The true Israel of God, that is that began with righteous Abel and includes all the great cloud of witnesses that we see in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, that's the barley harvest. That's the first fruit. And the wave sheaf, which is Jesus, was from the barley harvest. Now, the wheat harvest is natural Israel, and they will be, res they will be given the opportunity with David, the resurrected David as their king, to rule the nations. We are the first fruits of God, his administration, his, the bride of Jesus, kings and priests, royal priesthood. And then you have Israel, the first fruits of the nations. And all nations we find on the prophecies will come up. Zechariah chapter 14 will come up and learn God's way from Israel. And then we have the fall festival. The first day of the seventh month is trumpets that signifies the return of Christ. He comes for his bride. Nine days later, is the day of atonement. Uh, that uh, pictures a time when Satan is put away and consummation, the, the wedding between the bride and the groom is consummated beyond the veil in the Holy of Holies. And then we, five days later, we have the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles, seven days representing the... Um, Millennial reign of Christ upon the earth when God's government will be established here and Christ will be king and we will rule with him. And then the last great day, the eighth day of the feast, which represents the great white throne judgment, the second resurrection, and then a new heavens and a new earth. This old being destroyed and God the Father with his magnificent throne coming down upon the new heavens and the new earth. That will all take place and we'll all be together ever since. So, turn over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We will conclude there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So as we press on, brethren, 
Let us remember the most significant event that's ever happened in history happened during this feast, the, the resurrection. <clears throat> and here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, we see, Paul said, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you also stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Think of all the things that Paul taught us now. He's saying that you have to do these things. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, and that was that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Now, he goes on and talks about the order of the, the resurrection. and, and uh, But now we want to go over and conclude beginning in verse 49 and read the remainder of this chapter to conclude uh, this sermon. Now, remember a little leaven leavens a whole lump? We have to watch for small things because they, they're not going to stay small. You know, God's Holy Spirit also begins small, but it grows too. So we're going to feed one or the other. Verse 49, just as we born, have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all, we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will be raised. Imperishable, but we will be changed. So those who are alive will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory <clears throat> through our Lord Jesus Christ. Where does the victory come from? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Do we have a responsibility to follow the Nazarene? Yes. Uh, can we stay in grace if we don't? No, we can't. Um, but all we have to do is make a commitment to do the best we can do. That's all, it, that all, that's all that matters. Everything else will be forgiven. So he says here in conclusion, Verse 58, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. That means steadfast, don't move. Immovable, steadfast in your faith. Don't listen to lies. Don't listen to doubts. Be immovable and be always abounding 
in the work of the Lord. Knowing that your toll, your labor, is not in vain in the Lord. I love you. God bless you all. <laughs>